1 Kings chapter number 12. I do want to invite you as well on Saturdays, every Saturday at 10 a.m. We meet right in here, as Brother Ehrlich was saying, and we pass out these gospel tracts and and uh, we try to let people know there's a church that cares about them. Most importantly, there's a God who cares about them, died on the cross for them, who would save their soul if they would just ask them. We were yesterday out in Stockton. I get to go with my kids. I love taking my kids. And uh, I love the fact that they get to smile and serve the Lord. I, it, just, it just helps me. And we were out there in Stockton and Western Ranch passing out some flyers. And there was a lady walking down the right side of the street. And me and my boys and, uh, are on this side. I was calling them Mario and Luigi. They, uh, a couple weeks ago, they got, uh, they got, uh, one got a Mario a hoodie and one got a Luigi hoodie. They're into that now. And so I'm calling them that as we're out having fun. And, and uh, we were on this side. And, and my wife and, and the girls were on the other side. That lady was coming by. And we finished our side and hopped over and finished while she was talking to that lady. And then, and then she sent the girls to me. And I thought, oh, she's going to try to lead that young lady to Christ. So we went to the car. We prayed. And I kept looking in the mirror, you know, trying to see, is my wife coming? My wife coming? Not coming yet? Not coming yet? And we prayed and, and I watched some Sonic videos or something on the phone while we're waiting. And, uh, and then I see my wife come and I look at her and she says... She got saved. And I thought, man, what a blessing. What a blessing. You know, there are people out there that if we'll just tell them, they'll accept Christ. They're out there. And so I encourage you to come out soul winning on Saturdays. I read a story, though, of an evangelist having a rough day out door knocking. And he decided to knock on one last door. And he fully expected it to be slammed in his face like all the rest he had knocked that day. Sure enough, knocked on the door. An older woman answered the door and angrily demanded that he leave once he explained who he was and why he was there from the church. She got upset and asked him to leave and slammed the door. And when she slammed the door, though, the, the, the door hit and it, and it bounced back open. She got upset and said, get your foot out of my door. But the man, the evangelist, began to explain. The woman again slammed the door in his face. Once again, it bounced back open. I told you to get your foot out of my door, the woman yelled. One more time, she slammed it again even harder, and this time it bounced open even more. But ma'am, the evangelist said, only to be cut off, don't talk back to me, she said. I want you off my property right this instant. And she took both hands, and she reared back and slammed the door as hard as she could. And you guessed it, it bounced back open again. And, uh, and as the evangelist was retreating uh, down the driveway to the south, she says, ma'am, it'd be a lot easier to close your door if you'd get your cat out of the way. <laughs> Uh, so soul winning is fun. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you to go out. First Kings chapter number 12 and verse number 20. The Bible tells us this, And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation, made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Skip down to verse 26, if you would. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return into the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And you may be seated. Convenience is a big deal in this day, especially in America. All of us prefer what's convenient. And my hand's raised in that. I enjoy what's convenient. We live in a day of so many modern conveniences. I think about the drive-through. 
Boy, it's so convenient sometimes when you're, when you're in a rush to drive through and just grab something to eat. You don't do that because it's the best food in the world, but it's convenient. And so you drive through. Now, how about the drive-through car wash? How many are thankful for the drive-through car wash? You don't have to do anything. You have to lift a finger. All you got to do is swipe the car. You sit there. I mean, it, it pulls the car through for you. And at the end, your car's washed and clean. It's great. It's a modern convenience. Uh, at 8.30, I preached this, and after service, someone told me, they said, you know, I was talking to an older lady who used to come to this church a while ago. I think she passed now. And he was saying, you know, we were talking about conveniences years ago, and she told me that one of the greatest conveniences that she ever got to enjoy in life was a water pump inside the kitchen. I said, a water pump? She said, yeah, yeah, you know, to actually pump water. And she said when she was growing up, she had to go half a mile to fetch water. And then one day they finally got a pump in the kitchen. That, it, was, it was just it was, it was a party for her. I thought, boy, how, how far conveniences have come nowadays, huh? Uh, I, I think about GPS. How many would say you probably use GPS almost every day? Let me see. About almost a, all right, all right, most of us. And some of them have where you work, where you drive somewhere, you got to use that. And how many remember before that? Before it was on your phone, before you had the Garmin or whatever it was, you had the AAA map. Remember the AAA map? And that thing was about this wide, this tall, about this thick. And when you finally opened it all the way, it was the size of a football field. You know, it was just huge. And, uh, and you would try to find where you are. And, but nowadays, you don't have to do that. You just say, you know, okay, Google, take me to, you know, uh, Wingstop or Siri, take me to wherever you're going. It's so convenient. While convenience largely is helpful and a good thing, there is a great danger in making convenience our God. When convenience becomes so important to us that its influence starts to spill over into our spiritual lives, we're on a dangerous path. Too many of us, myself included, I'm preaching this message to me right here. Too many of us bow to the altar of convenience instead of the commands of God. God lays out his commands, his ways, and the world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh are constantly trying to convince us that there's a better, an easier way instead of just simply doing what God asks us to do. In our spiritual lives and in our service for God, we are often tempted to do what is convenient. The word convenient means suited to personal comfort, to easy performance. Instead of stretching and pushing for God, we do what's comfortable. We do what's easy. What affects us and what affects my schedule in a minimal way. And when we do that, we can fall into the cycle of convenient Christianity. To illustrate this point, we're going to look at two stories this morning uh, that illustrate this cycle. They start the same, but in one story, the Bible character makes a decision, makes a choice that changes the outcome. With the Lord's help this morning, I endeavor to preach this message, the cycle of convenient Christianity. What happens when we allow convenience to guide our spiritual lives instead of the commands of God? Let's look in His Word and find out this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these, Your dear people. What a blessing to stand before them and share the word of God with them. I pray, God, you'd open all of our hearts, mine included. God, I need this message. God, you've been working in my heart in this passage, God, because I need it. I pray you'd help me. I pray you'd help these as they listen. May we see where you want us to change and help us, God, with this cycle of convenient Christianity. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, we're in 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to look at our first character this morning. His name is is Jeroboam. Can you say that his name is Jeroboam? Say his name. 
Hey, you guys are Bible scholars. I like it. Jeroboam. And this is the king of Israel here. First Kings chapter 12. Here's the background of the story very briefly. Uh, uh, Solomon was the king. And we know he's, he's known for building a lot of things, but especially his temple. Right? We call it Solomon's temple. And so, sorry, I, I stepped out of the frame. They're smiling at me. I stepped out of the frame. And uh, he, he built Solomon's temple, that great edifice. And uh, many other things he did. A great armory, a great cavalry. I mean, everything with Solomon was up here. It was huge. And so he passes off the scene and his son Rehoboam comes to reign. So the kingdom gets passed to his son Rehoboam and the people come to Rehoboam at his coronation and say, look, Rehoboam, and uh, your dad was awesome and Israel is at such a high place, but could you just kind of take, take it back a notch, give, give, give us a reprieve. Uh, it's been great what we've been able to do, but boy, it's been hard on us and, and the taxes have been high. And if you just give us a little reprieve, we'll serve you forever. We know the story. Long story short, Rehoboam says, no way, Jose. I'm going to be harder on you than my dad was. And so these guys say, he's a tyrant. Forget this. They throw up their hands and they decide to rebel against Rehoboam and get their own king. Verse number 20. It came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, they sent and called him into the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So now we have Jeroboam with ruling as the king of Israel. We have Rehoboam as the king of Judah. He's got two tribes, and uh, Jeroboam has the ten in the north. Verse 26, what does Jeroboam do? Now that he's got the reins, now that he's the king of God's people, what's the first thing he does? Look at verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He begins to think, you know what? God's people, Israel, they might end up going back to serve Rehoboam. Here's his reasoning. Look at verse 27. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Now, why was he thinking this? Because uh, we don't have time to look at the verses, but three times a year, uh, the Israelites were commanded to go to Jerusalem, down where the temple was, and present themselves before the Lord. Three times. At the Feast of Passover, at the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so he's thinking, Jer Jeroboam says, man, three times a year, these guys are going to go down there, and they're going to offer themselves to God and do the worship they're supposed to do. Here's what he says. When they go down there, he says, then shall the heart of this people... Turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He says, What's gonna, what I'm afraid of is they're going to end up going down and serving God where he asked to be served down in Jerusalem. They're going to realize we should be serving Rehoboam. Why are we serving Jeroboam? He, Rehoboam is David's grandson. He's Solomon's son. Why are we serving this guy? And he, he was afraid they're going to they're gonna reject Jeroboam, serve Rehoboam, cause an insurrection, kill him, get him off the scene. He didn't want that to happen. So what did he do? Look at verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam plays the convenience card with them. He says, look, guys, look, it's too much. It's too difficult. It's too extreme for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem. Like, think, think about it logically now. You live all the way up here in Israel, and you're going to go all the way down there. That's just too much. He played the convenience card. And this leads me to point one. When we allow convenience to be king in our spiritual lives, it will inevitably lead to compromise. To compromise. God wanted them to go to Jerusalem. But Jeroboam said, now look, guys, that's not really, that's not really logical. You're going to do all that for God? That's too much, he said. And so he gets them to compromise. We, we begin seeing what God asks as unreasonable. We begin seeing what God wants for us as too much. 
When convenience is king in our spiritual lives, we begin to think that what God asks is out of the realm of reasonability. I can't do that. If I did that, I would have to, and that's too much. Lord, I can't give that. If I were to give that, I'd have to, and God, that, that, that's too much. And we begin to compromise. Israel had soon forgotten all that God had done for them. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 136, would you? Psalm 136. This psalm uh, is a great psalm about the mercy of God shown throughout Israel's history. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read the first part of the verse. You all are going to read the last part of the verse. And it's it's easy because it's the same part every time. All you're going to say is, for his mercy endureth forever. But you're going to say it uh, as, we, as you read together. So let me read the beginning of the verse, and you can read the last half of the verse. And we'll tie this together. Look at chapter 136 of Psalm, Psalm 136, verse 13. Are we there? And it's on the screen if you need it. It'll be there as well. Here's what it says. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts altogether for his mercy and made Israel to pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him which led his people through the wilderness. To him which smote great kings. And slew famous kings. And then this is talking about when they went into the promised land. Then he begins to name the kings that they conquered. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, the king of Bashan. And gave their land for an heritage, even an heritage unto Israel, his servant, who remembered us in our low estate, and hath redeemed us from our enemies, who giveth food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. God asked them to come to Jerusalem three times a year, which up to this point was reasonable for them. That's what they were used to doing. That's what God wants. That's what we'll do. But all of a sudden now, it's too much. Now it's, ah, oh, I can't do that. I have this. I have that. And it became too much. They forgot all that God had done for them. They forgot how they were in bondage in Egypt and God brought them through the Red Sea and God sustained them with quail and with manna and God brought water out of a rock and, and God helped them cross uh, the Jordan River and defeat all these. And they went into houses they didn't even build and olive yards they didn't even plant. And God blessed them with all these things. And now they're, from that, they're here with, that's too much, God. I can't do that. That's too much. But just as Israel forgot what God had done for them, we so quickly forget what God has done for us. We forget how he lifted us up out of that horrible pit, out of that miry clay and set our feet on the rock. We forget how he saved our sorry souls and took us from a path heading to hell, turned us around and put us on a path to heaven. We forget about that. We forget how he brought us through thick and thin and sustained us every step of the way. And God comes to us through the preacher or through our devotions in his word and he asks us to do something and we say, it's too much. We've compromised. What does it mean to compromise? It means to come to agreement by mutual concession, to find or follow a way between two extremes. If I could illustrate this, Brother Linder, if you could help me, and, uh, and Brother Ben, are you here, Brother Ben, this morning? Would you help me, please, Brother? So, Brother Linder, if you'd stand right here, you're going to hold this. This is going to represent what I want. 
what I want in, in my uh, base natural desires, what I want to do in my flesh, what I desire. Am I good in the shop, brother? Am I all right in there? Okay, I'm good. Uh, this right here is going to be what God commands. This is what I want. This is what God commands. This is what? This is? This is? This is? Ah, okay. So this is what I want. This is what God commands. Now, I ought to be, I ought to be over here. We ought to be over here. Now, this is not to say that I never want what God commands. That's not the point of the illustration here. Uh, the, the, the point is being in my desires. I don't always feel like doing what God wants me to do. I don't always feel like knocking on a door and telling someone the gospel. I don't always feel like uh, being the, this Christian I ought to be because we have a sinful flesh. So this is what I want. That's what God commands. But we, what we do sometimes is instead of being all the way over here, we'll be, we'll be right here. That's compromise. God wants us there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not over there. I mean, true, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I want to do I'm not doing, so I'm over here. But we're not there. And so we're compromising. And when we're, we're close to it, but we're not quite there. We're close to what God wants us to do. Maybe God's been speaking to your heart. He's been tapping on your heart saying, hey, I want you right here. And you say, Lord, I'm content to be right here. This compromise. Uh, the Bible says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I know I ought to be faithful to church. I, I know I ought to be doing that, but... You know, I just have a lot to do. Uh, I'll be right here. Uh, I know, God, you want me to give. I know you want me to serve. I know you want me to do whatever God puts on your heart. I know you want me to do that, Lord, but uh, I'm okay right here. Maybe you're a single person and you think, I, I know that I ought to stay pure and I ought to stay holy and keep, keep my mind right, and, but, but I want to be right here. I'm not over here, but I want to be right here. It's compromise. It's compromise. It's not what God wants us to do. It's, we're trying to mix, well, what I want and what God wants we end up falling into compromise because we want to do what's convenient for us. We want to do what's easy for us. This is not always easy. It's the best thing to do, but it's not always easy. And so we end up compromising. Thank you, gentlemen. When I think about that, here, I'll take it from you. When I think about that, we look at what God wants us to do. We look at what God commands and our minds start to think, this is too much. Now, some of these things we used to do before, and it wasn't too much. And boy, we were happy to do it. But now we look at it and think, oh, I can't do that now. Now understand life changes. Please, don't, don't misunderstand me here. Uh, understand what I'm saying. God, God knows where you're at and what you can do. But too often, myself, I know where God wants me to be. And I'm content to be close, but not right there. And I've compromised. I've compromised. But what happened to Romans 12.1? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This right here, this right here is not extreme. This is not unreasonable. Uh, this is not out in the sky. This is reasonable for us. What God asked me to do, that's the least that I ought to be doing for him. But we begin to think it's too much. Too much for the one who gave everything for me. What could be too much for the one who loved me before I even knew who he was? Nothing could ever be too much for my Lord and my Savior. Author David Uggsberger tells of General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who lost his eyesight. His son Bromwell was given the difficult task of telling his father there would be no recovery. Do you mean that I'm blind? General Booth said to his son. Bromwell replied, I hear we must contemplate that. He replied to his son, does that mean, Bromwell, I shall never see your face again? Bromwell said, on this side of eternity, no, you will not. General Booth gave a solemn response. He said, Bromwell, I have done what I could for God and his people with my eyes. 
Now I shall do what I can for God without my eyes. He wasn't content to be right here. He wanted to do everything that God had planned for him. I say in our lives, when we allow convenience to be king, eventually what happens is instead of us being right where we were supposed to be, we begin to compromise, we begin to pull back. And whereas God wants us to be here, we decide to lessen. Oh, we must be careful about the compromise. May I say this, compromise is an obedience imposter. It can look like obedience, but it's not. Look at this. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. We were in Psalm. Go to 1 Kings 12. Can somebody check the air back there if you don't mind? It may just be me. I'm getting worked up. That could be it. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if you're hot or not. Maybe you can check that. 1 Kings uh, chapter number 12. Compromise is an obedience imposter. Watch what Jeroboam does here. Take a look at this. Verse 32. So we know Jeroboam made these calves. Look what it says next. Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month. Catch this. Like unto the feast that is in Judah. You see what he was trying to do there? You see, the feast in Judah was God's feast, what God had instituted. But he's trying to come up with a new way so they don't have to, so, because that's too much. But he says, okay, so we will worship here and they're having a feast. Well, we'll have a feast too. Continue reading, look what it says. And he offered upon the altar. So did he and Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. There, they'll have a feast. We'll have a feast too. They're going to offer sacrifices. Hey, We'll offer sacrifices too. Look what it says. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. They have priests. We'll have priests too. See, we're not that different. We're not that far off. We have the same elements that they do. But the fact was, it wasn't what God wanted them to do. And they compromise. It's an obedience imposter. But I say our God doesn't deserve a compromise on his commands. He deserves compliance to his commands. I love that chorus by Wendell Loveless. It's not in our hymnal. I grew up singing it. I don't know where, maybe in the hymnal I had growing up. I don't remember. But it's called, After All He's Done For Me. It goes like this. After all he's done for me. After all he's done for me. How can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely? After all he's done for me. After all God has done for us, he deserves this right here. Hey, I said he deserves this right here. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve, well, I, I know what you want, Lord, but I don't know. No, that's, no, 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 no. He deserves this right here. When we, when we get caught in convenient Christianity, we begin to compromise. Then what do we see next? And I hasten. Look at verse number 30. What's next in this cycle of convenient Christianity? We see first it leads to compromise, but then after that we see corruption. Look at verse 30. And this thing became a, what's the next word? Sin. For the people went to worship before the one even unto then. This thing became a sin. When we decide we're going to live by spiritual convenience, we compromise, and then it leads to corruption. We end up falling into sin. That's just the way it works. When we back off what God wants us to do, we end up backing into sin in our lives. And James 1 explains this. Now, you would have thought, you would have thought that when Jeroboam said, here's the idea, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have these golden calves. You would have thought that someone had said, hold on a minute. I've seen this movie before. I know how this ends. I've seen Israel and the Golden Calf episode one. I don't need to see episode two. But that's not what happened. You see, their convenience led them to, to swallow that hook, line, and sinker. That compromise led to corruption. It led to sin. The Bible says in James 1, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, James says. You see, when we give in to our own lusts, our own desires, it leads us down a slippery slope to destruction. 
When we live and we're led by, spiritually by convenience, we compromise, which turns to corruption. And then we see chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. We see God gives an opportunity for correction. Aren't you glad that when we head down the wrong way, God tries to get our attention? He tries to wake us up and point us the right way. Look what happens in chapter 13. Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. I'm glad that God sent a man of God with the word of God to show the will of God. Oh, how it helps me. Here's what happens. The man of God comes and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So get the picture in your mind. The pro- God sends the prophet to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is there standing by the altar of incense. Probably they're doing his thing, maybe whistling a, you know, a bad song. You know, he's not serving God. Whistling a pagan rock song. I don't know what he's doing. And he, he's, there, he's there at the altar burning incense. And this prophet comes along, verse 2. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Boy, he rears back and starts the thunder. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Whoa, I can see Jeroboam's eyes open. That wasn't what he expected to hear. And the prophet said, hey, that altar right there, all these false prophets that are offering on that, their bones are going to be burnt on there. Whoa, man, talk about hard preaching, shocks Jeroboam. And God gave an opportunity for correction. God God was trying to tell Jeroboam, hey, Jeroboam, wake up. You're not doing right. You're going the wrong way, buddy. Stop what you're doing. He was trying to give him an opportunity to correct his way. And aren't you glad when I'm going the wrong way, God says, hey, Chris, hey, knucklehead, wake up, turn around, go the right way. God does that through his word. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. You see, God has given us this, not just so we can say, hey, we have a Bible. God's given us this so that way when we're going this way, God can say, hey, I don't like that. Turn around. And we say, yes, sir. And we go this way. That's what God wants us to do when he gives an opportunity for correction. But what did Jeroboam do? Let's look at verse number four, chapter 13. He went down the road of compromise and corruption. Now he's being offered correction. What did he do? Look what it says. It came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he rent his clothes and bowed in sackcloth and ashes and said, I'm a sinner. Is that what it says? I wish it did. Here's what he did. He put forth the sand from the altar saying, lay hold on him. And that didn't mean give him a big hug. That meant arrest him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so he couldn't pull it again to him. We see instead of him uh, doing what was right, he instead got calloused. He got angry. He got upset. Look at me this morning, if you would. If God is speaking to your heart and God is trying to get through to you, don't harden up on him. Don't get rebellious and calloused. Don't do that. That's what Jeroboam did. God sent the man of God to say, Jeroboam, stop what you're doing. This is not going to end well. You better quit now. Instead of him repenting and correcting, he got got hard. He got calloused. And we are in danger of doing the same thing. Jeroboam chose wrong. He got upset at God's attempt at correction and hardened his heart. What became of that? Look at the next chapter. We'll do chapter 14. Turn page or two over. You have a Thompson chain reference. It's page 418. Chapter 14, verse number 7. He chose wrong. He got callous. What did it end in? It ended in catastrophe. Look at the judgment that God pronounces against him. Verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted thee from among the people, I made thee prince over my people Israel and rent the kingdom away from the house of David. I gave it to thee. 
Yet thou hast not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in mine eyes. But thou hast done evil above all that were before thee. Thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. Oh, look at this powerful wording. And hast cast me behind thy back, the man of God says. Verse 14, he lowers the boom. Moreover, the Lord shall raise him up a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam that day. But what even now? For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed shaken in the water. He shall root up Israel out of this good land. Verse 16, he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. What a catastrophic end. From that point forward, Israel never had a good king who loved the Lord all the way like they were supposed to. The kingdom of Judah did, not the kingdom of Israel. And right here is pronounced that one day a kingdom would come and uproot them out of their land and bring them into captivity. And sure enough, Assyria came and captured and conquered and brought them into captivity. Now, how did they get all the way to that where God says he gave Israel up? Boy, I don't want God giving me up. (laughs) But that judgment was so strong that the Bible says God gave Israel up. How did they get to that point? Started all the way over here. Go down to Jerusalem. It's too much. that's too hard. That's too extreme. And they gave it to their convenience. It led to corruption. And they they got calloused. They ended in catastrophe. Now, I want us to shift gears and look at one more character. And I'll go through this very quickly. I know what time it is. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Would you look at that? We're going to see someone who started the same cycle, but he ended it differently. 2 Samuel chapter 11. The cycle of convenience, starting with compromise and corruption and Correction, the opportunity for correction, but callousness and then catastrophe. But we see David in 2 Samuel 11 has a different path. I won't take time to read it, uh, but the Bible says that it was at the time when kings go forth to war, but David didn't go. David's the king, kings go forth to war, David didn't go. That's not how it was supposed to work. He was supposed to be out there battling, he didn't do it. So he compromised on his job, what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to be right here, but he wasn't. He was right here. What happens next? We understand that he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And beyond that, after that, he tries to cover it up and he murders uh, Uriah the Hittite. So we see compromise. Then we see corruption. We see the same cycle. But then we see correction. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We know that Nathan comes, the prophet. He tells him an allegory, uh, a story that is an allegory of David's sin. David doesn't realize it yet. And David gets all worked up and says, whoever did that, he needs to be put to death. Off with his head. Get that guy in here right now. He doesn't deserve to live. And Nathan points his bony finger at, at David and says, thou art the man. And David realizes, oh boy, God's got my number. So we see compromise, we see corruption, we see correction. But what does David do? Look at this, look at verse number 13. And here's the message. I mean, this has been the message, but here's the, here's the you know what I mean. Don't get scared, I'm almost done. Look at verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, next three words, I have sinned. Can we say that? Here we go, ready? I have sinned. Instead of David hardening up and getting calloused, we see confession. And may I say, that is the right response to God's correction. The right response to God's correction is not that we get hard and say, but God, I want to do this. And go, how how come I can't? That's not the right response. The right response is, Lord, you're right. (laughs) I've sinned. And because David confessed, keep reading verse 13. We see God gives a cure. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. That quickly, in the same verse, God's forgiven him. Oh, how wonderful it is. And when we decide to to do the right thing with the correction, and when we confess, God gives the cure of complete and total forgiveness. 
So the difference comes down to this. What will you do with the correction you receive from God's word? When God shows you, hey, here's what I want you to do. You have a choice. Will I get hard? Will I get callous? Will I get rebellious and do what I want? Or will I say, Lord, I've messed up. Boy, look what I did. And I sure messed things up. But God, I want to do right. And that is what David did. Rehoboam got callous, but David confessed. For some today, you've not yet accepted Christ as your Savior this morning. You've been waiting for, for a convenient time, waiting for the right time. I say the right time is today. The right day is this day. Don't wait anymore. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's a story in Acts of a man named Felix. He was, he was a Roman official, and uh, he called for Paul to speak to him. And Paul stood before this Roman official, and he presented the gospel to him. And, and here was his response to, to Paul. The Bible says Felix trembled. He was convicted and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for thee. As far as we know, that convenient season never came for Felix. The Bible never says he called Paul again, he accepted Christ. For all we know, Felix may be in hell today. Don't let that be your story. There's no better time to get saved than this day right now, than this hour. Don't walk out of it. If you're not sure you're saved, don't walk out of this building without getting that settled. What have we learned from God's word this morning? When my conversation, my lifestyle is subservient to convenience instead of God's command, I'm heading for catastrophe and collapse. When comfort is the king of my life, Christ cannot sit on the throne of my heart. When convenience is my master, Christ cannot be my Lord. Christians are faced daily with this choice. Will I choose convenience and the comforts it affords and what I want to do, or will I choose the clear commands of God found in his word? Would you decide today, today, right now, before you walk out of this building, to dethrone spiritual convenience in your life? Don't continue in the cycle of convenient Christianity. Decide today to break that cycle. Get right with God. And do what he asks you to do. That's where the good life is. Can we stand with our heads bowed, eyes closed?